I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. And, and we're, we're the, the sirens. sirens. Today we're talking about The Defiant Ones, which is a 1958 drama about two escaped convicts, one black and one white, who are chained together and must work together despite the impact of systemic racism on their individual experiences, all in order to try to evade capture. The movie stars Sidney Poitier as Noah Cullen and Tony Curtis as Joker Johnson. Uh, It was directed by Stanley Kramer. Um, Cullen and Johnson are two convicts who are chained together, uh, which is evidently unusual since they are not the same race. And when the police wagon they are being transported in is involved in an accident, they try to escape. But Johnson is mired in the racism that has been inculcated in him his whole life, and Colin is not at all pleased to have to explain to him what it's like to be a black man. The pair is pursued by a sheriff and search team, including dogs and their overprotective wrangler, Um, (laughs) and the sheriff has moral wrestlings of his own. Lots of dangerous pursuit ensues. (laughs) Yeah. I think at certain points during the movie, I was thinking this is... Some of it almost felt like a horror film. Like, they were chained yeah. together in a swamp, and, like, people were after them. And they were chained that, together trying to cross a river. <laughs> yeah. That that was a pretty good summary. It was a really, like, interesting, compact movie. Yeah. That had a lot to say. Yeah, it felt like a small movie. Like, it was a movie about, like, a short period of time, a few people, but, like, talked about lots of bigger issues. Yeah, and the dialogue was really important. This was like, you could see why it got all those Oscar nominations, because... Yes, all of the Oscar nominations. Yes, exactly. Um, Do you have any trivia for us about this movie? I do. Eventually, also about those Oscar nominations. So, um, Robert Mitchum turned down the role of uh, Joker Jack Johnson, because he claimed... He, he claimed to have served in a Southern Jane gang at some time when he was 14 and said he didn't really believe the premise that a black man and white man would ever be chained together in the South. Mm. Um, so, and there apparently was some, like, other stories about um, uh, Mitchum's, like, virulent racism, which may or may not be true. The young man who uh, that's part of the search party that has the transistor radio is played by Carl Switzer, who played Alfalfa in Our Gang. Um, oh. Yeah, and sadly, this is his final screen appearance before he was killed in a shooting accident. Oh. Yeah. Um, That's sad. I did not put that together, that that was him. Although, I saw, when I was looking at the cast, I saw that it, Alf, the Alfalfa actor was in this, and I was like, who was he? Yeah. Yeah, there were a couple actors where I was like, oh, got it. Um, there is a, a technical advisor that was... Um, like, took part in the filming that, uh, who, he went uncredited because he was a real-life Jane gang escapee who was still a wanted man. Oh. Um, yeah. Co-writers Nedrick Young and Harold Jacob Smith were cast as the prison truck drivers with the writing credits below their faces because, uh, Nedrick Young was blacklisted and writing under a pseudonym at the time. Producer Stanley Kramer wanted to identify them truthfully, apparently, so that was, like, the way around getting, or, or the way around... The blacklisted Joker uses the like refers to Charlie Potatoes a couple of times, um, mm-hmm. and that's an old slang term for someone who's on the top of the world. 
like with lots of money and popularity, which it was some a slang that I'd never heard before. Um, yeah, that's I, I thought that was a pretty funny saying, and I mean I figured out from context clues what it meant, but when he first said it, I had no idea what he was talking about. I know. I think like a like a an unofficial theme for this uh, year for us is yes random slang that we've never <laughs> encountered before. Um, apparently Tony Curtis insisted that Sidney Poitier receive top billing for this movie. Um, Poitier was the first black male actor to be nominated in any acting category for the Academy Awards, um, by earning his best actor nomination for his role in this film. So groundbreaking. Wow. Filming was physically exhausting for both Tony Curtis and Sidney Poitier. They had to run through fields and swamps and woods and fight each other and everything involved. They they didn't use a ton of stunt doubles. Um, the most, I guess, I guess the most grilling scene was when they were chained together being swept down the rapids of a river and then also when they had to climb out of the deep clay pit. The clay pit scene, they didn't use any doubles, but there was a double for a little bit of the water scenes um, for Poitier's character, um, which, which, like, when I was watching that scene, I was like, how did they film that and nobody died? Um, so. Yeah. Was, uh, I, the clay pit scene, too, like, that was really brutal. Yeah. I thought. Yeah. Apparently, Tony Curtis, um, like, really backed the movie, like, generally, and he ra- helped raise the $1 million budget through currently the production film production company that he had created with his wife Janet Lee. This movie was the only best picture movie um, best picture nominee um, for the Oscars that was also nominated for best screenplay and theater Bacal was the also the only best actor in a supporting role that year from a best picture nominated film. It's kind of a kind of maybe kind of a boring uh, piece of trivia to end on. No. Yeah, this movie, I was very glad that we watched it. I found it very compelling and interesting, and it seemed modern in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the performances were really good, even some of the smaller characters. Yeah, there are a number of... I, in, like, going back through to do the trivia and prepping for this, I, I hadn't, like, paid attention to who was in this movie, aside from Tony Curtis and Sidney Poitier, and so I was surprised to see, like, you know, some other names that I recognized. So I bioed Cara Williams. <laughs> the um, only woman with a speaking role in this movie? The only woman with a speaking part who also didn't even have a name in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Billy's mom. Yes, she uh, was Billy's mom. But her child had a name, but not her. Women don't need names, it's fine. We only exist in relation to the men around us. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So, Cara Williams was born Bernice Camiot in 1925. And she's best known for this role and um, for playing Gladys Porter on the 1960-62 CBS show Pete and Gladys. Uh, She was born in Brooklyn, and her father was a journalist for the Brooklyn Eagle, and her mother was a manicurist who worked next to Brooklyn's Albee Theater, and she would leave her daughter there for the theater owners to babysit um, while she was working, so she spent a lot of time watching movies as a young child 
And she started impersonating the screen stars and decided she wanted to be an actress from the time she was young. Um, her parents divorced and her mother relocated to Los Angeles and she attended the Hollywood Professional School and began, began using Cara Williams as her stage name. And she started performing in radio and then was signed at age 16 in 1941 to a film contract. Her first credited role was in the 1941 Western Wide Open Town, and she had many uncredited and supporting roles in the 1940s, including in Laura, uh, In the Meantime Darling, Boomerang, and Knock on Any Door. Uh, in the 50s, she appeared often in television, especially from 1950 to 52, and then she played supporting roles in the musicals The Girl Next Door and The Great Diamond Robbery. She also appeared in Monte Carlo Baby, a comedy with Audrey Hepburn. Um, and then she took time off when she married John Drew Barrymore and gave oh. birth to their son. Yeah, I didn't realize she what? was married to uh, a Barrymore. Um, they were married, or she had her son in 1954. Um, but that, that was like a rocky marriage and did not last. Um, in 1956, she appeared in the Oscar-nominated film Meet Me in Las Vegas, in which she performs the song I Refuse to Rock and Roll. What? I know. Then I was like, oh, I need to see this now. Um, in 1957, <laughs> she played a supporting role in The Helen Morgan Story, which stars Anne Blythe and Paul Newman. And in 58, she was cast in this role in The Defied Ones, which was nominated for Best Picture, and for which she was nominated for the Golden Globe and Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. And then in that 1960-62 to 62 period is when she starred on Pete and Gladys with Harry Morgan as Pete. And the series was actually a spinoff of another CBS comedy, December Bride, in which Morgan appeared from 1954 to 59. And his character's wife, Gladys, was mentioned throughout the series, but never appeared. So then he brought that character to life in the spinoff, um, and she played Gladys. And um, she was nominated for the Emmy Award for Best Lead Actress in a Comedy for that. Huh. Um, and CBS reran that show a lot, so she kind of became, like, she was sort of in the public eye even after it went off the air. Hmm. And then they returned her to primetime in 64 in her own series, The Carol Williams Show, in which she and Frank Allater portrayed a married couple who had to keep their marriage secret from their employer. But that only lasted one season. Um, and then in the 70s, her acting became less frequent. Her last film role was in 1978 with The One Man Jewelry. And after retiring from acting, she began a career as an interior designer. And she still lives in Los Angeles and was married to real estate entrepreneur and one-time actor Asher Don, her third husband, until he died in 2018. So she's, uh, when I was looking her up, she was listed in a lot of places as like the last living golden age of Hollywood actress. Wow. Yeah. God, so I she's, like well, she, so she was born since... in 1925, so she's almost 100. It's been so long since we've, I, I don't even know the last one that we've, the last person we've talked about who's still alive. I know, and even some of the later movies we've done where the people could theoretically be alive, they usually died in some tragic way. <laughs> so, so this is kind of nice, isn't it? I didn't expect something so good out of this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
So, general thoughts. What did you think of it? I, you know, I'm glad that we watched it. I think that it is, I think you're 100% right that it's, like, very timely. You know, I was surprised at how, I don't know why I was surprised by this, but I think I was surprised at just how, like, they tackled, you know, racism. And, like, not just, like, interpersonal racism, but, like, institutional, like, and systemic racism head-on. And... And that, you know, I, I think, like, I was glad that it turned out that they, like, ended up having these two convicts had, like, I don't know if I would say that they were friends at the end, but they were, like, they had a connection and a bond at the end, which, mm-hmm. like, maybe is unrealistic. But on the other hand, they, like, did this, like, traumatic <laughs> thing together. So maybe that does make sense. And I was really glad to see Tony Curtis in something other than um, Some Like It Hot, which was, I think, the only other thing I've seen him in. So Yeah, wasn't it a sharp turn going from that role to <laughs> yes. this? Yes. It's like, oh. Although I feel like there were a couple moments where I heard him speaking, and I was like, oh, I think I can hear your uh, your, to- your uh, Cary Grant impression coming through. But <laughs> what, Did what, they say in the movie at any point what state this was supposed to be in? I kept trying to figure it out. I I feel like they did at some point and I can't remember if it was like South Carolina or Louisiana. I mean it was deep south. Yeah. But I I think I had a similar reaction as you did to the movie. Like it was really good. I was interested the whole time. I was You know, I think I was sort of prepared that it wasn't going to have a good outcome, but I had actually really hoped that they would get away. (laughs) Yeah. I liked the way it was shot, and it made them trying to escape not look glamorous. Like, I feel like if this movie was made today, it would have been, like, super choreographed, and they would have been, like, when they're trying to escape the clay pit, they would have been, like, you know, like, rock climbers or something. Yeah. (laughs) Um, in this movie, you know, it was like, they looked awkward at times and, um, they were like covered in dirt and like falling down a lot. And it just felt more realistic of this like hard scrabble escape and like just trying to make, like get, even if they escaped, like their chance of making it was so slim (laughs) like I was thinking like okay you get to the like the next town you have no money you have no like identification yeah how is this possibly gonna end well yeah so but I I thought it was good and like you were saying like it did talk a lot about the institutional stuff and like it the very odd thing was it really felt very relevant to like the work I'm doing right now at my job because Uh we, I guess two, two nights before I watched the movie, we had an entire meeting about the race class narrative Oh really? and like the history of like white supremacy in the country and how it was like a deliberate movement to like drive a wedge between poor white and poor black Americans. Uh Uh-huh as a way to, like, consolidate money and power. And, like, this was, like, the purest... Because you could see that they both had had kind of sucky lives mm-hmm. and struggled and were treated poorly by, like, rich, powerful white men. And, you know, it's there's, like, a fear among the ruling class that if if the poor united 
that they really would have the power to like change things and um overthrow systems so yeah. like it was very deliberate like this whole movement and it's still the case today like this we're still dealing with this like this this is like you know you all have common interests but you don't see it because there's been this like lie fed to generation after generation so like this did a really good job of illustrating that I thought and mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't thought about that particular piece of it. Well, and the other thing that was funny is I was talking to a board member and she said she really thinks that the only way forward, even though it's like a slog, is that people need to have conversations with with people who are not like them and mm-hmm. like actually talk to them because it's really hard to hate someone when you actually like sit down and spend time with them. Yeah. And um, that this movie also demonstrated that because they were forced to spend time together and talk about their lives and there was a lot of overlap not to make light of it but so chain people (laughs) (laughs) and have them run from the cops cops yeah that's a key thing running from the cops um a key lesson that we all have to learn is that the oh god the the uh prison industrial complex is nobody's friend no Although this, did you notice how this movie had like a, like a different take on authority in a way? Like, so the, there was the guy in the town who let them go. Right. Because he had been on a chain gang. Yeah. And then the sheriff was like, really not interested in hurting or brutalizing them. And he even said at one point, like, Look, I'm only really, like, doing this job so I can, like, pay my mortgage and take care of my family. And I don't want to have to, like, do all these horrible things. Yeah, and if I don't get elected again, like, I'll just go back to being a lawyer. And the guy who he was talking to was like, well, you didn't make a ton of money as a lawyer. And the guy was like, it's not worth it to, like, brutalize people. Yeah, that was the thing that I thought was interesting in this is... I mean, going back to, like, the class thing, that it even seemed like a lot of the people who were, you know, sort of, like, the, like, pursuers were kind of trapped in the same system. (laughs) But didn't they make some reference to the sheriff being Dutch? He wasn't American. He had, and he had, he did have a little bit of an accent. And I don't know if that's because Theodore Bakel has a little bit of an accent, but I was like, like, so it was almost, to me, I, like, extrapolated out a little bit of a, like, critique of, like, how people, like, how race and class, like, play out particularly in the United States. And if you don't grow up in that, like, atmosphere, you come in and you're like, why, like, what is the deal? Why is this still an issue? Because, I mean, not to say that racism doesn't exist in other countries, because obviously, of course it does. There is, like, a particularly American... I think, bent to the racism that exists here just because of the history of slavery here. Which, like, I don't, I couldn't tell if that was, like, on purpose or not. That they were... Oh, see, I did not pick up on that at all, that he was supposed to be Dutch. I think they just mentioned it, and I'm looking to see... Oh, Theodor Bakel is Austrian, so they were, like... Which means, of course, that I'm, like, totally butchering his last name, but, um... (laughs) (laughs) He was... And his first name, probably, too. (laughs) (laughs) but that would make sense then why he would be a little different like it seemed very odd to me and I guess just the way that we think about policing is very different now than it was in the 50s but Mm -hmm. like 
the way that he was acting, especially when he had people pushing him and like all these volunteers showed up and were like, we're going to hunt them like rabbits. And he was saying like, they're not rabbits, they're people. people. Like I was like, this feels like not what I would expect no. <laughs> from a 1950s movie. <laughs> no. Like part of it felt very, um, I don't know. I didn't, I don't want to say I felt nostalgic for that, that like police, like sense of policemen, like being like, yeah, they're, they're people, not rabbits. But like, this is a very different movie. A diff- very mm. different time. It made me think of like the blob a little bit where like watching oh, it now yeah. I was like oh the police are gonna like lock up these teenagers for like, and instead they're like we believe you about this alien and we're gonna help you. <laughs> oh we could do a whole season about police and movies in the 1950s. It's true. <laughs> so can we talk about the whole scene in that village with the where they were gonna lynch lynch them them. yeah yes we should because that was that was quite a scene wasn't it yeah i was thinking that the whole way that um that guy was acting like go ahead and do it like i was like that could backfire very easily yeah (laughs) which that guy the guy who played sam i think is Mm -hmm. the character's name that's lon chaney jr which i'd it's one of those actors that I, like, recognize and never, like, can put the name to the face. So, gonna try and remember that now this time. He was good, too. They had a lot of good people in the supporting roles. Yeah. It um, was, I mean, I think, so they, like, they went through that scene where they were talking about, um, you know, that they were gonna lynch the two guys and they were trying to get the white dude to, like, Joker to, to like, blame it all on the on Noah. And yeah. he wouldn't. Then, yeah, speaking of things backfiring, then Noah spits in there, the guy's face, right? Yeah, because they try to get him to spit on Joker. Right, on Joker. And then, like, when they're locked up later, like, Noah, like, kind of, like, figures out that Joker has witnessed a lynching, and that's the only reason why he was so scared in that moment. Yeah. And that was why he, like, reacted to the lynching in the way, which, like, I don't know. Like, if someone... <laughs> the threat of being lynched is reason enough to be scared. But I thought that was an interesting, like, additional element, too, that, like... And kind of goes back to what you were saying about, like, you know, they had this this thing in common of, like, being poor men in the South. But Yeah. I thought that Cullen's character did, like, a really good job of explaining, like, all the aggressions he had to just swallow throughout his life and like all the like inner rage that that created yeah too and you could also see i mean again a lot of this is stuff that is very much being talked about now but even after they start to develop like some sort of rapport and like understand each other better and see the commonalities repeated times when joker sort of betrays him when push comes to shove Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that element of, like, you know, not being able to really trust mm-hmm. white people, even if they kind of act like they're your friend, you know? That's, I think that comes up a lot still. Like, oh, I'm I'm a good white person. I'm a good white liberal. And, like, this is, yeah. um, you know, you can trust me. But, it, I mean, in, the, in this case, it was coming down to, like, he... Th- he was like, well, you can't lynch me. I'm a white man. Yeah. He wasn't saying you can't lynch us. He was saying, like, like you can't lynch me. Yeah. yeah. And later with 
I mean, he did eventually go back and go after Cullen, but later with Billy's mom, he was like, so what? Like, I want to survive, and, like, this is my chance, and she, like, there's no room for you, basically. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. There's multiple ways, like, even as they're forming a relationship where, like, he just keeps betraying him. Yeah. That's why, so, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead too much, but in the final scene where they're trying to get on the train and Cullen gets on the train, but Joker can't, Mm -hmm. and then they both, like, fall down the ridge. When I watched it, I interpreted it as, like, he was trying to help him and then he, like, accidentally got pulled off. But when I was reading up about the movie, I read that it's supposed to be ambiguous that he might have jumped off. Oh, yeah, and I read it as, I saw it as him jumping off. Like, if they couldn't both go together, then he wasn't going to go without Joker. Yeah, and I was thinking maybe it would have been a better ending if he had just gone. I don't know. Is that that wrong to think that? I feel like it would have been a fairer ending. Yeah. It would have been, like, harder, and, like, of course, like, now we have, like, the ending that exists is more of a, like, heartfelt, oh, they're stuck together even though they weren't chained together anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, he, you know, they didn't abandon each other. Even though Joker kept abandoning Noah. You're like, yeah, get the, get the black man on the train so he's escaping and the white man won't <laughs> receive, like, as harsh a punishment. Yeah. <laughs> I think I just wanted that for Cullen. Like, I just wanted him to get to get away and did did you feel like even though they were kind of presented as equal characters and stuff I still felt like narratively Joker was like centered a little bit more did you think that yeah Yeah, I think that's I I felt that that way because I wonder that's another thing that I thought if this movie was made now I think it would be the opposite. Yeah, I mean, I think it would depend on the director. So, uh, yeah, but, like, I was as I was watching it, I was a little bit annoyed because I wanted to be, like, I felt like we got um, Cullen's, or not Cullen's, we got Joker's point of view a lot. Cullen had really great dialogue, but I, it didn't feel like we ever really got in his head or, like, his, his point of view as much. Yeah, I, which I'm not that surprised about, I guess. I guess for, like, the 1950s, it was like, well, you know, they're like, what, we didn't we do enough? <laughs> we all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. Well, are we ready to talk about social justice? <laughs> yes, let's keep talking about social justice in this Okay. <laughs> I know, I, felt, I feel like we covered it for the most part, unless you have more to add. I mean, I think, like, I think this was an, uh, this is kind of meta, but I think this is an unusual movie for its era in that it's, like, tackling this head-on and it's like it's it's interesting to me that like the one one of the writers was blacklisted and couldn't be named and one of the you know they actually like had a technical advisor who was part of a chain gang to you know help make sure that you know it was like technically correct i guess for the experience of of someone who was an escaped convict who evidently like was managed to evade capture like your reference just now about like you know how this movie would be different if it were made now I think that's like interesting to like think about because I feel like it would be different in a lot of ways but maybe the crux the like the central thrust of it of just like exploring how 
each of these men is have been like affected and impacted by the racism around them like that probably wouldn't change yeah i think you're right i mean it definitely had like a social justice viewpoint and agenda as a movie i'm curious how people felt about it when it came out just like you know your average like 1950s movie going audience yeah i mean like it's fascinating that it was was critically acclaimed that it got all these like academy award nominations and which to me says that like it was a rare case when people were like yes a movie about race like really tackling an issue or whatever although I guess like I would be curious to see how black audiences interpreted this movie in yeah particular. yeah that's true since the academy is so still so white I know I feel like awards in general are like going by the wayside now in the post-pandemic world I hope so I think like people don't seem to care anymore <laughs> And now we don't even have, like, a glitzy show to, like, pull us in. It's like, oh, it's, this like, this Zoom living room and this Zoom living room. <laughs> a bunch of people wearing tuxes in their Zoom living rooms? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and the same white people getting the same rewards. Yeah. And movies about Hollywood win yet again. <laughs> I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. Well, so I think, I'm hoping that if we talk about Bechtel, we can get into Billy's mom and that whole dealio. Yeah. Is it now? Are we talking about it now? I think we are. Yeah, I mean, I could have watched a whole movie maybe about Billy's mom. It felt like a, to be honest, that like that whole thing felt like kind of out of place with this movie where I was like what is happening now like <laughs> yes I agree especially when she just like stares at him like across from the coffee pot yeah, and I'm all like, of a sudden it's like hey I'm like you're a, a woman who's been abandoned by your husband you have a son and who just like brings home these two men you like are ready to feed the white one the white one is like making you feed the black one and then they, like, they're obviously chained together. That doesn't give you pause, I guess. <laughs> um, and then the white one, like, has an infection, so has a fever, and so you nurse him back to health, but only, it's just, like, he's fine after 24 hours. And then your kid <laughs> shoots him when, after, he, like, he's refusing to, like... When you lay out the facts, Hill, it sounds very implausible. <laughs> Oh, and you're gonna like you're gonna run away with this guy. You're gonna leave your kid with somebody I forget who, and you're gonna run away with this guy that you don't even know his name. And he doesn't know your name because we don't know your yeah. name. The, this was wild. Like that, it was it, it was like it all of a sudden became like a Harlequin romance or something for like a couple frames because all of a sudden she just looks at him with googly eyes, and he, like he. Literally came in with a gun and was like, give me, <laughs> like, give you me feed food. us. And, like, threatening her. And then she's, she's like, you know what? You're kind of a sexy convict. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna go with you somewhere. I've got $200. Then, was it implied that they had sex? It wasn't, I night? think it was implied. But and, like, like, literally they were in, like, a one-room hut. <laughs> like, her son was, like, right over there. 
Well, and, like, like, I know they were running through a lot of, like, swamps and woods and stuff, but the idea that, like, they would have sex in the bed and Noah, who's fallen asleep at the table, doesn't wake up at all, even if he's, like, extremely tired. I'm like, that seems... Or her son. Let's remember, he was also right there and less tired. (laughs) And at no point does Billy's mom talk to another woman, so, like, this movie doesn't pass the Bechdel test. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't. (laughs) There's there's no other developed female characters. There's, like, one or two other women who have, like, a line. Yeah, in the town. But they're, like, answering the sheriff's questions. Not. But, yeah, that... It was pretty... That whole thing was pretty wild. And then she was just like, all right, we're running away. Like, I'm hitching my wagon to you, convict on the run. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's go off together. I'll just drop my kids somewhere. I know. Like... I, I, yeah, I mean, I feel like there could have been, could be another movie just about, like, Billy's mom's predicament and, like, her, I mean, there, we got, we fed, we got, we were fed a lot of backstory about her. Yeah. And at the point at which she was, like, I have money and, like, we can go, like, have a life, I was, like, just do that without the convict you don't know. Like, take your money and your kid and, like, go somewhere else. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, get in your car and go somewhere. Anywhere. Uh, that's why I kept wanting to know, like, exactly where we were. Because I was like, are you really living that remotely that, like, you can't even get anywhere? Or, like, what's happening? Yeah. It kind of seemed like they were pretty darn remote. Because, like, the closest thing was, like, oh, there's a, um, a train track, like, this many miles away of, yeah. like, a freight line. <laughs> But then why is there just one farm in the middle of nowhere? Yeah, that makes no sense. How do you get supplies? Like, what is going on? That's a really good question. So. Or how do you sell your stuff from your farm to somewhere to make money? We should do an exercise hill where we, like, each write a short story about (laughs) Billy's mom. (laughs) I'm game for that. Okay. So, yeah, that doesn't pass Bechdel, but... Passes social justice with flying colors. Yes, flying colors. Uh, are we ready to rate them? <laughs> I think so. Do you want to go first this time? Okay. Um, Only because I'm guess. stalling. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, uh, I don't know what to get. I mean, all right. I think I'm going to give it a 3.75. Okay. Which is like, you know, I think it's a good movie. I like the way it was directed and written. And the performances are good. And I'm glad I watched it. I mean, it's not something I would watch, like, over and over and over again. Go back to a lot. But um, I found it compelling. And I I would actually recommend, like, other people watch it, Mm -hmm. too. Yeah. So that's kind of how I got there. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I think I would say a 3.75 as well. It was thought-provoking different from other movies we've seen in the like this period and you know moved along like it was you know it was a simple story but like you know it wasn't like boring to watch or whatever it was you know and I wasn't it had kind of a like uh surprising but inevitable ending like I wasn't sure you know whether they'd be caught or not yeah and I would recommend it to other people to watch it would have been can you imagine if the ending had been like you know it just shows them, like, in Mexico, like, later, like, 
yeah. owning a bar together or something like that. Yeah. Or Brazil. Didn't didn't Joker want to go to Brazil? Yeah. Somehow. Be, being Charlie Potatoes. Being Charlie Potatoes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got Tomatoes from Marty and Charlie Potatoes from this movie. So I wonder, like... Soon there'll be grapes. <laughs> yes, exactly. We'll see what else. We should have like a running list of the slang we learned from various old movies. <laughs> this one I think I might use, actually. I like this one. Charlie Potatoes. And people will be like, are you talking about Mr. Potato Head? Yeah, I'll be like, "You, if you know, you know. Yeah. If you know, you know. So what's our next movie, Hillary? Um, our next movie is The Lady Eve. Yay, going back into comedy land. <laughs> May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter, at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all... Tomorrow is another day.